Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight's story, The Marsh King's Daughter, by Hans Christian Andersen. The storks relate to their little ones a great many stories, and they are all about moors and reed banks and suited to their age and capacity. The youngest of them are quite satisfied with cribble-crabble or such nonsense and think it very grand. But the elder ones want something with a deeper meaning, or at least something about their own family. We are only acquainted with one of the two longest and oldest stories which the stork relate. It is about Moses, who was exposed by his mother on the banks of the Nile, and was found by the king's daughter, who gave him a good education, and he afterwards became a great man. But where he was buried is still unknown. Everyone knows this story, but not the second. Very likely because it is quite an inland story. It has been repeated from mouth to mouth, from one stork mama to another, for thousands of years. And each has told it better than the last, and now we mean to tell it better than all. The first stork pair who related it lived at the time it happened, and had their summer residence on the rafters of the Viking's house, which stood near the wild moorlands of Winnesel. That is, to speak more correctly, the great Moorheath, high up in the north of Jutland by the Skagen Peak. This wilderness is still an immense wild heath of marshy ground, about which we can read in the official directory. It is said that in olden times the place was a lake, the ground of which had heaved up from beneath, and now the moorland extends for miles in every direction, and is surrounded by damp meadows, trembling, undulating swamps, and marshy ground covered with turf, on which grow bilberry bushes and stunted trees. Mists are almost always hovering over this region, which, seventy years ago, was overrun with wolves. It may well be called the Wild Moor, and one can easily imagine, with such a wild expanse of marsh and lake, how lonely and dreary it must have been a thousand years ago. Many things may be noticed now that existed then, The reeds grow to the same height and bear the same kind of long, purple-brown leaves with their feathery tips. There still stands the birch with its white bark and its delicate, loosely hanging leaves. And with regard to the living beings who frequented this spot, the fly still wears a gauzy dress of the same cut, and the favorite colors of the stork are white with black and red for stockings. The people certainly, in those days, wore very different dresses to those they now wear, but if any of them, be huntsman or squire, master or servant, ventured on the wavering, undulating, marshy ground of the moor, they met with the same fate a thousand years ago as they would now. The wanderer sank and went down to the marsh king, as he is named, who rules in the great moorland empire beneath. They also called him Gungal King, but we like the name of Marsh King better and we will give him that name as the storks do. Very little is known of the Marsh King's rule, but that, perhaps, is a good thing. 
In the neighborhood of the Moorlands, and not far from the great arm of the North Sea in the Kattegat, which is called the Lumfjorden, lay the castle of the Viking, its watertight stone cellars, its tower, and its three projecting stories. On the ridge of the roof, the stork had built his nest, and there the stork mama sat on her eggs and felt sure her hatching would come to something. One evening, stork papa stayed out rather late, and when he came home, he seemed quite busy, bustling and important. I have something very dreadful to tell you, said he to the stork mama. Keep it to yourself, then, she replied. Remember that I am hatching eggs. It may agitate me and will affect them. You must know it at once, said he. The daughter of our host in Egypt has arrived here. She has ventured to take this journey, and now she is lost. She who sprung from the race of the fairies, is it? cried the mother stork. Oh, tell me all about it. You know I cannot bear to be kept waiting at a time when I am hatching eggs. Well, you see, mother, he replied. She believed what the doctors said, and what I have heard you state also, that the more flowers which grow about here would heal her sick father, and she has flown to the north in swan's plumage, in company with some other swan princesses, who come to these parts every year to renew their youth. She came, and where is she now? You enter into particulars too much, said the mama stork, and the eggs may take hold. I cannot bear such suspense as this. Well, said he, I have kept what? And this evening I went among the rushes where I thought the marshy ground would bear me, and while I was there, three swans came. Something in their manner of flying seemed to say to me, Look carefully now, there is one not all swan, only swan's feathers. You know, mother, you have the same intuitive feeling that I have. You know whether a thing is right or not immediately. Yes, of course, said she. But tell me about the princess. I am tired of hearing about the swan's feathers. Well, you know that in the middle of the moor there is something like a lake, said the stork papa. You can see the edge of it if you raise yourself a little. Just there, by the reeds and the green banks, lay the trunk of an elder tree. Upon this the three swans stood flapping their wings and looking about them, one of them threw off her plumage, and I immediately recognized her as one of the princesses of our home in Egypt. There she sat, without any covering but her long black hair. I heard her tell the two others to take great care of the swan's plumage, while she dipped down into the water to pluck the flowers which she fancied she saw there. The others nodded and picked up the feather dress and took possession of it. I wonder what will become of it, thought I, and she most likely asked herself the same question. If so, she received an answer, a very practical one, for the two swans rose up and flew away with their swan's plumage. Dive down now, they cried. Thou shalt never more fly in the swan's plumage. Thou shalt never again see Egypt. Here on the moor thou shalt remain. So saying, they tore the swan's plumage into a thousand pieces. The feathers drifted about like a snow shower and then the two deceitful princesses flew away. Why, that is terrible, said the stork mama. I feel as if I can hardly bear to hear any more. But you must tell me what happened next. The princess wept and lamented aloud. Her tears moistened the elder stump, 
which was really not an elder stump, but the March King himself. He who in marshy ground lives and rules. I saw myself how the stump of the tree turned round and was a tree no more, while long, clammy branches like arms were extended from it. Then the poor child was terribly frightened and started up to run away. She hastened to cross the green, slimy ground, but it would not bear any weight, much less hers. She quickly sank, and the elder stump dived immediately after her. In fact, it was he who drew her down. Great black bubbles rose up out of the moor slime, and with these every trace of the two vanished. And now the princess is buried in the wild marsh. She will never now carry flowers to Egypt to cure her father. It would have broken your heart, mother, had you seen it. You ought not to have told me, said she. At such a time as this, the eggs might suffer. But I think the princess will soon find help. Someone will rise up to help her. Ah, if it had been you or I or one of our people, it would have been all over with us. I mean to go every day, said he, to see if anything comes to pass. And so he did. A long time went by, but at last he saw a green stalk shooting up out of the deep marshy ground. As it reached the surface of the march, a leaf spread out and unfolded itself broader and broader, and close to it came forth a bud. One morning when the stork papa was flying over the stern, he saw that the power of the sun's rays had caused the bud to open, and in the cup of the flower lay a charming child, a little maiden, looking as if she had just come out of a bath. The little one was so like the Egyptian princess that the stork, at the first moment, thought it must be the princess herself. But after a little reflection, he decided that it was much more likely to be the daughter of the princess and the marsh king, and this explained also her being placed in the cup of a water lily. But she cannot be left to lie here, thought the stork. And in my nest there are already so many. But stay. I have thought of something. The wife of the Viking has no children. And how often she has wished for a little one. People always say the stork brings the little ones. I will do so in earnest this time. I shall fly with the child to the Viking's wife. What rejoicing there will be. And then the stork lifted the little girl out of the flower cup, flew to the castle, picked a hole with his beak in the bladder-covered window, and laid the beautiful child in the bosom of the Viking's wife. Then he flew back quickly to the stork mama and told her what he had seen and done. And the little storks listened to it all, for they were then quite old enough to do so. So you see, he continued, that the princess is not dead. "'for she must have sent her little one up here. "'And now I have found a home for her.' "'Ah, I said it would be so from the first, replied the stork mama. "'But now think a little of your own family. "'Our traveling time draws near, "'and I sometimes feel a little irritation already under the wings. "'The cuckoos and the nightingale are already gone, "'and I heard the quails say they should go too "'as soon as the wind was favorable.' Our youngsters will go through all the maneuvers at the review very well, or I am much mistaken in them. The Viking's wife was above measure delighted when she awoke the next morning and found the beautiful little child lying in her bosom. She kissed it and caressed it, but it cried terribly, 
and struck out with its arms and legs, and did not seem to be pleased at all. At last it cried itself to sleep, and as it lay there so still and quiet, it was a most beautiful sight to see. The Viking's wife was so delighted that body and soul were full of joy. Her heart felt so light within her that it seemed as if her husband and his soldiers, who were absent, must come home as suddenly and unexpectedly as a little child had done. She and her whole household therefore busied themselves in preparing everything for the reception of her lord. The long-colored tapestry on which she and her maidens had worked pictures of their idols, Odin, Thor, and Frigga, was hung up. The slaves polished the old shields that served as ornaments. Cushions were placed on the seats, and dry wood laid on the fireplaces in the center of the hall, so that the flames might be fanned up at a moment's notice. The Viking's wife herself assisted in the work, so that at night she felt very tired, and quickly fell into a sound sleep. When she awoke just before morning, she was terribly alarmed to find that the infant had vanished. She sprang from a couch, lighted a pine chip, and searched all round the room, when at last, in that part of the bed where her feet had been, lay not the child, but a great ugly frog. She was quite disgusted at this sight, and seized a heavy stick to kill the frog. But the creature looked at her with such strange, mournful eyes that she was unable to strike the blow. Once more she searched round the room, then she started at hearing the frog utter a low, painful croak. She sprang from the couch and opened the window hastily. At the same moment the sun rose and threw its beams through the window, till it rested on the couch where the great frog lay. Suddenly it appeared as if the frog's broad mouth contracted and became small and red. The limbs moved and stretched out and extended themselves till they took a beautiful shape. And behold, there was the pretty child lying before her, and the ugly frog was gone. How is this, she cried, have I had a wicked dream? Is it not my own lovely cherub that lies there? And she kissed it and fondled it, but the child struggled and fought and bit as if she had been a little wildcat. The Viking did not return on that day, nor the next. He was, however, on the way home. But the wind, so favorable to the storks, was against him, for it blew towards the south. A wind in favor of one is often against another. After two or three days had passed, it became clear to the Viking's wife how matters stood with the child. It was under the influence of a powerful source. By day it was charming in appearance, but with a temper wicked and wild, while at night, in the form of an ugly frog, it was quiet and mournful with eyes full of sorrow. Here were two natures changing inwardly and outwardly with the absence and return of sunlight. And so it happened that by day the child, with the actual form of its mother, possessed the fierce disposition of its father. At night, on the contrary, its outward appearance plainly showed its descent on the father's side while inwardly it had the heart and mind of its mother. Who would be able to loosen this wicked charm which the sorcerer had worked upon it? The wife of the Viking lived in constant pain and sorrow about it. Her heart clung to the little creature, but she could not explain to her husband the circumstances in which it was placed. He was expected to return shortly, 
and were she to tell him, he would very likely, as was the custom of that time, expose the poor child in the public highway, and let anyone take it away who would. The good wife of the Viking could not let that happen, and she therefore resolved that the king should never see the child excepting by daylight. One morning there sounded a rushing of storks' wings over the roof. More than a hundred pair of storks had rested there during the night to recover themselves after their excursion, and now they soared aloft and prepared for the journey southward. "'All the husbands are here and ready,' they cried. "'Wives and children also.' "'How light we are!' screamed the young storks in chorus. "'Something pleasant seems creeping over us, even down to our toes.' as if we were full of live frogs. Oh, how delightful it is to travel into foreign lands. Hold yourselves properly in the line with us, cried Papa and Mama. Do not use your beak so much, it tries the lungs. And then the storks flew away. About the same time sounded the clang of the warriors' trumpets across the heath. The Viking had landed with his men. They were returning home, richly laden with spoil from the Gaelic coast, where the people, as did also the inhabitants of Britain, often cried in alarm, Deliver us from the wild Northmen. Life and noisy pleasure came with them into the castle of the Viking on the moorland. A great cask of mead was drawn into the hall, piles of wood blazed, cattle were slain and served up, that they might feast in reality. The priest who offered the sacrifice sprinkled the devoted parishioners with the warm blood. The fire crackled, and the smoke rolled along beneath the roof. The soot fell upon them from the beams. But they were used to all these things. Guests were invited and received handsome presents. All wrongs and non-faithfulness were forgotten. They drank deeply and threw in each other's faces the bones that were left, which was looked upon as a sign of good feeling amongst them. A bard, who was a kind of musician as well as warrior, and who had been with the king in his expedition and knew what to sing about, gave them one of his best songs, in which they heard all their warlike deeds praised and every wonderful action brought forward with honor. Every verse ended with this refrain, Golden possessions will flee away, friends and foes must die one day. Every man on earth must die, but a famous name will never die. And with that they beat upon their shields, and hammered upon the table with knives and bones, in a most outrageous manner. The Viking's wife sat upon a raised cross-seat in the open hall. She wore a silk dress, golden bracelet, and large amber beads. She was in costly attire, and the bard named her in the song, and spoke of the rich treasure of gold which she had brought to her husband. Her husband had already seen the wonderfully beautiful child in the daytime, and was delighted with her beauty. Even her wild ways pleased him. He said the little maiden would grow up to be a heroine, with the strong will and determination of a man. She would never wink her eyes, even if, in joke, an expert hand should attempt to cut off her eyebrows with a sharp sword. The full cask of mead soon became empty, and a fresh one was brought in, for these were people who liked plenty to eat and drink. The old proverb, which everyone knows, says that the cattle know when to leave their pasture, but a foolish man knows not the measure of his own appetite. Yes, they all knew this, but men may know what is right, 
and yet often do wrong. They also knew that even the welcome guest becomes wearisome when he sits too long in the house. But there they remained, for pork and meat are good things. And so, at the Viking's house they stayed and enjoyed themselves, and at night the bondmen slept in the ashes and dipped their fingers in the fat and licked them. Oh, it was a delightful time! Once more in the same year the Viking went forth, though the sun... We'll continue our story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always looking for great stories like this one to feature on the show. Send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>